0: Blog Talk Radio.
1: This episode sponsored by the new book Dads of Disability, a book that will foster discussions among fathers, mothers, and caregivers. You haven't seen a volume like this one. Samples and special offer at www.dadsofdisability.com/coffee. Good evening, and welcome to The Coffee Clutch in our continuing series on synesthesia. Last week, we had Dr. Sean Day on to give us an introduction to synesthesia, and this week, we're going to delve a little deeper into the topic of when and how synesthesia develops in school aged children. I'm pleased to have Dr. Julia Simner as our guest this evening, coming to us all the way from Scotland. Dr. Simner is a cognitive neuropsychologist educated at the Universities of Paris-Sorbonne, Oxford, Toronto, and Sussex. She currently runs the Synesthesia and Sensory Integration Lab at the University of Edinburgh and among many other things is the editor of the recently published Oxford Handbook of Synesthesia. This thousand-page handbook brings together the broad body of knowledge about synesthesia into one definitive, state-of-the-art handbook. Dr. Simner, thank you for being here and welcome to our show.
0: Hello there. Thank you very much for inviting me, it's my pleasure.
1: Wonderful. Well, I'm so glad that we were able to have you on, Dr. Sinner, because um, synesthesia in school-age children is a topic near to my heart, and you have a lot of good information to share with us, I'm sure. So to start off, I'd like to hear what your research tells us about when and how synesthesia typically develops in children.
0: Well, I would say that my research is, provides really part of a, um, a jigsaw piece in part of a larger puzzle, so there are a group of um, uh, researchers now who are interested in the idea of synesthesia development, and I think really to understand this development, we first might have to look at a colleague of mine, Daphne Maurer, Daphne really was responsible for first asking this question, how does synesthesia develop? And her interest really has been looking at very, very early stages in life around the time of birth and shortly thereafter. Now, Daphne made an interesting proposal, and that was that um, it is possible that, in fact, all people are born synesthetic. And that over time, the average person loses their synesthesia, whereas a small percentage of the population Keep hold of it into adulthood, and that's called the neonatal synesthesia hypothesis. Because the idea really is that neonates already have synesthesia, and so my research really uh, develops from that. But in a but in you know a kind of a quite a broad way, um, I'm maybe maybe you know if you wanted to ask me a specific question, I can just jump in and give you some information. It's it's really been a project that's that's unfolded over the last decade, so lots to say.
1: Mm -hmm. Lots to say. Well, I guess maybe we could uh, kind of hone in on um, picturing a parent or teacher um, with a child in early elementary school, let's say. Um, Because the reason I'm really interested in talking about this is to find out whether parents and teachers really need to know whether their child is experiencing synesthesia um, or not, because if they if it is a benefit to know, um, you know, if it will help them in some way, if it will maybe because I, I've seen some sort of hiccups in school with children um, with their synesthesia. So, you know, it's just my big question of, you know, do we need to sort of screen or sort of just be on the lookout for it um, in order to help the child's educational and emotional development.
0: So. So you know, I'm
1: thinking again. about
0: somebody... Oh, go ahead. So, yeah, I mean, I, just to jump in there, I mean, I would say absolutely that we would want to screen it, and um, my the next four years of my research are really going to be focused in on designing a screening tool for, um, to, for for use in schools. Now, synesthesia only affects a very small proportion of the population, so the question of whether all parents might need to know about synesthesia, possibly not, but the question of whether the parents of children experiencing synesthesia would want to know about it at an early age, I would say yes, and that's for a bunch of reasons. So if I take a step back and explain to you how I came into this field in the first place. So the reason I started to get interested in the development of synesthesia was because I started to receive emails to my lab. So the more I produced work on synesthesia in adults, the more that work was described in, in newspapers and on the web, and, and my, the profile raised slightly, and people started to understand a bit more about synesthesia. and. Began then to contact me. And I received a lot of emails from parents and also from teachers and also from child synesthetes themselves. And the general message I was getting in these emails was that. they were asking for uh, information about childhood synesthesia, how to assess childhood synesthesia, what are the implications of having childhood synesthesia, and you know, how might they help guide their child through the schooling experience. And I guess I first received one of these about a decade ago, and, and for a long time, for many, many years, my response has had to be, I'm terribly sorry, science doesn't yet know the answer to that question. A few years ago, I thought, like, enough is enough, so I decided to start to research in this area. And uh, what I was able to do was show when synesthesia is developing, When you confer- at what age can you first recognize synesthesia in school age children, and how does that synesthesia impact on their day-to-day life in school. So one thing we know, for example, just from anecdotal reports and from these messages from parents is that although synesthesia is associated with a bunch of advantages, a bunch of benefits, and we can talk about those in a bit. There are also problems that children with synesthesia in school seem to be experiencing, and one of the key problems is easily resolved. One of the key problems comes down to a lack of knowledge and a lack of understanding uh, among teachers. So I have received lots of, inf- lots of emails from parents saying, my child has synesthesia, they've tried to explain it to the teacher, the teacher has essentially disbelieved them. And that can be quite distressing for a child. So synesthetic children just setting out just to describe their average, the normal experience of life, and then to be disbelieved, that can be a confusing thing. And even adult synesthetes. Um, um, so, for example, Carol Steen is an adult synesthete and adult artist, and she's written about her experiences first sharing synesthesia, the experience of synesthesia, with her peers, and she also describes how. Um, she found that a very upsetting experience. She said that she was on her way home from school one day with her best friend and she turned around and I think she told her that the letter P was, the, was a really beautiful color and the girl looked at her, her friend looked at her as if she was mad and then Carol Steen simply never told a single person again until she was an adult and she tried, to, she tried to resist her synesthetic experiences, ignore them and she just couldn't really understand about them at all. So I would say first of all one reason that we do need to look at... Um, synesthesia in schools is just to raise awareness among teachers so that if a child comes forward and says, I'm experiencing this, it wouldn't sound so alien and it can be better understood and better uh, taken forward from that point. So that's the first thing really. I completely agree and and
1: I would love to just um I'm sure you have many examples that there was one example you gave but um I have some examples too that we can give to parents and and teachers, if they're listening to this show, of of how they might um, see this come up. So, a um, couple examples. Um, I know, well, with my own daughter, she was in second grade, and the teacher was presenting flashcards to the class. They were practicing their phonic sounds. So the teacher would flash, let's say, an A with a, a long sound, and they were supposed to say A. So... When the teacher flashed the card my daughter said saw the A and she said, Red <laughs> and The teacher said you know, so she kept the teacher kept showing her the flash card a little closer to her face, you know, she's like, No, here, A and she'd be like, Red <laughs> and then she'd show <laughs> E and then she would say, Green you know. <laughs> so of course, like you said, the teacher's just puzzled, you know, what's going on here and another example and I um I have many examples of this. Is um, and I'm not sure if we mentioned this on our previous show, but one form of synesthesia is um, personification, and that can be personification one of. My of yeah, um, and it, it, that's um, much more a rare form, correct than just your you know well, graphing color.
0: Actually, so you might think so, but actually we did a study uh, a few years ago, and it showed that personification was actually a lot more common than you might think. affects about 1% of the population, maybe just slightly less than colored letters, but but not too far off. It's not one of the extremely rare forms like tasting words, for example. I see. Okay. Um, So with personification,
1: um, from my experience, where you see this in school is with math, because... um, Some people with the object, or the, I guess, ordinal linguistic personification. I know, it's horrible. Um, I wish
0: I'd ever um, generated that term, actually. (laughs) Right. But that's just referring to when you have a series of things
1: or numbers that you see them as personalities. And so, um, a synesthete might see each of their numbers as maybe not only a specific color, but having... Um, a personality and maybe they have good days and maybe they have bad days and some numbers don't get along. That's my understanding anyway. Um, I don't experience that myself. Okay, so there's one um, elementary school age girl that I knew and I could tell that she had synesthesia and so I was speaking with her and I asked her, was there a time in school where you mentioned something? and a teacher looked at you funny, you know, and then you, just as you described, you know, look at you funny, and then you never really mention it again. So she, there were two examples that she gave, actually. She said, first of all, they were doing a math problem, and the answer to her was um, a number that was yellow to her. So they were doing this problem, they get the answer, and she says to her teacher, but it's yellow. And, of course, you know, the teacher looks at her like, what? So she just mm-hmm. dropped it. Another example was she said that she has trouble when she adds nine plus zero because nine is a wise old tree and zero is a volcano, and they have these personalities to them. And she couldn't add nine plus zero because she knew that trees couldn't grow in volcanoes. <laughs> you know? Yeah. So yeah. I could imagine that every interventionist and special education teacher, um, (laughs) they never could come up with that on their own. You know, there's no way. Um, Another example, um, I knew of somebody on Facebook. They they ended up pulling their child out of school. They were homeschooling her. And she was asking for help on this um, synesthesia group on Facebook. And she said, I just don't understand it. My daughter Mm -hmm. can't add one to anything. You know, it's not that hard. Why can't she do this? So it made me think, there's some reason why she can't. Maybe this is a bad number or something, you know. So I asked her if the number had uh, color and personality, and sure enough, it did. So there's a couple examples. It seems like math seems to be a stumbling block in that regard.
0: Am I wrong on this? I think that it need not be limited just to mathematics, actually. I think that what you 're describing uh is a sort of general trend in the fact that synesthesia can influence different as- aspects of education and th- math is quite an interesting case in point because um, There are some types of synesthesia that we know are particularly associated with deficits in mathematics, very, very subtle deficits in mathematics. Not the kind you're describing, not personifications and not colors, but um, something we call visual spatial synesthesia or sequence space synesthesia, so people with sequence space synesthesia see sequences like numbers, letters, months of the year, days of the week, projected out into space in a particular spatial array. So they might see the numbers uh, 1 to 10 running left to right in front of the vision, then 10 to 20 maybe going horizontally up, um, uh, sorry, going vertically upwards, and maybe 20 to 30 going over the back of the head and sort of snaking around in space effectively. And one study from uh, my colleague Jamie Ward and his lab has shown that Visual spatial synesthetes that have numbers represented out in space actually show very slight um, uh, deficits in, um, in mental arithmetic. Only for certain kinds of um, sums, though. So they're very good at addition, they're very good at subtraction, but they find it particularly hard to do multiplication. And they can still get the right answer, but they're slightly slower than the average person. Now, this is because when you look at the average person, we work out um, mental uh, arithmetic in different ways depending on what the sum is. So for addition and subtraction, we we use a different approach, a different cognitive approach to calculate in calculation than we use for multiplication. In multiplication, we tend to rely on rote verbal memory. So we sit down as young children and we learn 2 times 2 is 4, 2 times 8 is 16, 16 times 3 and so on. And we tend to learn that in a verbal way. Now people with visual spatial representations of numbers appear to over rely on those spatial forms at the expense of their verbal recall, and that's why they're particularly poor in um, mathematics for multiplication. Now, that's something that we see uh, in that kind of synesthesia, visual-spatial synesthesia, but actually we also see see other kinds of synesthesia helping in in certain areas uh, in classroom learning. So, for example, um, we've seen it helping, for example, in spelling. So quite often uh, synesthetes or synesthetic children can express to us that they're quite good at spelling because they can use the colors of the letters of the words to tell them how the word is spelt. So if you have a word like tenant and you're not sure if it ends ENT or ANT, the synesthete can say, well, I know how it ends because I know it's red at the end of the word and, and that, therefore, gives me an indication about the spelling and what the vowel must be. So I would say that it's a bit of a mixed bag that overall there are many, many benefits to synesthesia, a few drawbacks, and these are the kinds of things that really we do need to know about in the classroom.
1: Mm. Okay, right. So um, is there a... a you, you said that you're working on developing a screening tool. Um, what would... Is there something right now that somebody could go to to kind of help them determine if they have synesthesia? Or do you think it's more of a just reading about it and a kind of seeing if what your child is experiencing matches it?
0: Well, okay, so the answer to that is yes, there is a tool already available for synesthetes to go and immediately get feedback on whether they have synesthesia, but it's for adults. So there's a very nice testing tool that's known as the Synesthesia Battery and synesthesia has the American spelling in that, so if you would Google synesthesia battery or uh, its URL is synesthete.org. if you go to that website you can run through a series of tests designed for adult synesthetes and they will give you a score at the end of the test and um, your score can tell you whether you have synesthesia or not. Now the reason we can't use that with children is because the test is based on a certain assumption about synesthesia that only develops in adulthood, that isn't present in childhood. And that's why it's very hard to use it on children. So, the way the test works in particular is it relies on the fact that when synesthetes describe their colors for letters, say, when they describe their sensations, those sensations don't change over time. So, if you're a synesthete with a red A, your A always tends to be red. It's probably been red for as long as you can remember and it will stay red until you grow old. Um, there are obvious, there are exceptions. There are some synesthetes who are influenced by their, their emotional feelings. And for those synesthetes, their colors can sway a little bit. But in general, the average typical graphene color synesthete, that's a synesthete with colored letters, the, the sensations, the colors tend to take, stay, the same over, stay the same over time for any given synesthete. So the way that the test works is it repeatedly asks the person taking the test to provide colors for letters. So what is the color of A? What is the color of F? What is the color of G? What is the color of U? What is the color of A? And it will ask you the same letters again and again and again in a random order. Now only synesthetes can get right the way through this test without mixing up, messing up all their colors. So it doesn't really matter how many times you ask a synesthete what color is your letter A. It's always gonna be red. Whereas if you ask me, a non-synesthete, name a color for A. I might say red now. I might say green next Tuesday. I might say yellow in 20 minutes. But synesthetes will be consistent. So the way the test works is it evaluates how consistently you provide colors for letters. And if you're consistent enough, you're classified as a synesthete. Now, the problem this poses for children is that Consistency in synesthesia is something that develops over time from childhood into adulthood, and it's only adults who are synesthetes who are fully consistent. Child synesthetes are not fully consistent, and this is what my own research has been able to show. So we tracked a group of synesthetes, a group of growing child synesthetes, from the ages of about five, six, seven to the ages of about 10, 11. And what we saw was that at the age of six, only about 30 percent of letters have a consistent color. The other letters, the colors are fluctuating. Sometimes they're red, sometimes they're green. But for 30% of the alphabet, the colors have crystallized, they've fixed in place, and they're not going to switch. Now, by the time the child has grown to around seven, eight, that 30% of the alphabet has now grown to 51% of the alphabet. So around half of the alphabet for an eight-year-old synesthete is now fixed with a single color. When I say single color, I mean that for 50% of the alphabet, A is red, it will always be red. B is blue, it will always be blue. C is yellow, it will always be yellow. Uh, D is sometimes green, sometimes blue, sometimes yellow. E is maybe fluctuating also, but half of the letters in the alphabet are fixed by the age of eight. Now, fast forward to the age of 10 and 11, around 70% of the letters in the alphabet are fixed for any given synesthete. So what we see is a, a progression, a development over time In this feature of consistency, which is so crucial for us in adults, it's so crucial that adult synesthetes tend to be consistent over time because that allows scientists to, to to give an objective test, to say to one person you are acting like a synesthete and to another person you're not acting like a typical synesthete. I do feel like I want to qualify that at the end. There are a small number of synesthetes whose colours will vary, and they're still genuine synesthetes, but that's a very small proportion of synesthetes. Most synesthetes have fixed associations. So, for example, nine will always be an old tree, and um, zero will always be a volcano. So it doesn't matter the kind of synesthesia you have. It tends to be fixed in place into adulthood.
1: Hmm. Well, that's very interesting, and it kind of leads me back to what you were saying before about really what is important is sort of the acceptance of a child's synesthetic experiences. And I'm sort of picturing a scenario in which um, maybe somebody is knowledgeable about synesthesia and they they have a five- or six-year-old, and they think, oh, well, maybe they're synesthetic, and they ask them questions, well, you know, what is your A, what is your B, and they're inconsistent. And so they go, well, maybe... You know, maybe they're making this up, um,
0: and Not, that might kind, kind a shame of because, to this. Yeah, hmm. some small. We need to really provide a bit more information for the general public, so that uh, the, so that a parent in that position can say, "Well, my child's only six, so yeah, they are going to be a bit inconsistent. Let's try again in a couple of years, or let let's, let's hmm. try and see how consistent they are. Probably around thirty percent seems to be the, the value at, at age six.
1: Yeah, it's interesting. I know when my kids were younger. Um, Their alphabet would, there would be a certain number that were colored, but then when you got to like uh, v, W, X, Y, Z, they were all black and it, it really led me with a
0: feeling of, oh they just haven't gotten that far down yet. <laughs> Actually, I'd, say two, I'd have two responses to that. So, one response is yes, you are right, your intuition was right that there are some letters that get colored before others. Um, so, for example, the common letters in the alphabet, the E's and the A's and the S's tend to get colored first, whereas the uncommon letters like the Q's and the X's tend to get colored later. But the other thing I, w- I might say is that there's also a trend that even when the colours come in for the end of the alphabet, they're still dark. So the Xs, the Ys, and the Zs—they mm-hmm. do tend to be dark, dark blacks and browns anyway. Not always, obviously. You know, you can never generalise mm-hmm. about synesthesia because you'll have a hundred thousand synesthetes saying that's not true but when you look at the the conclusions I'm drawing, the descriptions I'm giving to you, I should probably clarify what the methodology is. The methodology is looking at very large groups of synesthetes and seeing what the trend is, seeing what most Mm -hmm. synesthetes do. Now, there will always be synesthetes that don't follow the trend, and this is something that I find really wonderful about synesthesia, is that as well as synesthetes sharing a community of shared experiences, they're also individuals and different. But when you look over large groups of synesthetes, it tends to be the case that the end of the alphabet is darker.
1: Hmm. That's that's fascinating. Um, So we have about um, five or eight minutes left. And um, so I'd I'd like to get into some more practical things. So um, Okay, so you determine that your child, you think, has synesthesia or a teacher is thinking this. Well, now what? I mean, does it does it require yeah. an intervention or is it, um, I think as you described, really just more of an awareness. If, if a student's maybe having trouble, just being aware that there could be a potential maybe hiccup or something um, with their synesthesia can can help alleviate a situation or at least provide more understanding. Um, sure. sure.
0: So I do, I do think there <laughs> are two answers to this. I do think that it is important to have – if you suspect your child has synesthesia – it is important that scientists are able to provide those parents with a testing tool, and that's exactly what we're doing right now. So the um, European Research Foundation – the um, uh, Euro- European Research Committee has just um, provided a grant of 1.1 million pounds, 1.3 million euros, for this tool to be developed. So it will take around four years, and in four years' time it should be relatively straightforward to have a child assessed for synesthesia. However, at present, what do you do? Well, Apart from the assessment process, if you've, if you've convinced yourself that you're fairly sure that there's synesthesia here in the child, there are other things to do. And so, in my book, the Oxford Handbook of Synesthesia, I've actually written a series of suggestions for parents and educators of how they can, what they can do in this situation. And there are a bunch of them. So I can just go through them now. What I what I wrote here and what I would suggest. So the very first suggestion I always have for any parent of a child with synesthesia is to help your child celebrate their synesthesia. So your your child will benefit from realizing that they're really quite a special member of the population, and that their synesthesia is tied to many cognitive benefits. So synesthetes can be more creative, they can have better perception, they can have better memories, and they're kind of gifted in many ways. So your child might feel a little alienated when they first realize that they're unusual amongst their peers, but with the parent's help, hopefully the child can begin to view synesthesia as a really positive attribute. Um, And that's really, for me, the very first piece of advice that I would give. The second piece of advice I would give is to foster a community in some way. So you can help your child realise that although she's quite unusual in the population, she's not alone, and that's very important. So my own research has shown that in the average UK primary school, there are around 2.2 um, children with coloured there are around two children with coloured letters in any cohort of a UK primary school, and around five in the average-sized American primary school. So the child should know they're not alone. There'll be other synesthetes out there in their own school probably. And so what you might do to foster some kind of community is you might encourage your child's school to consider an assembly on synesthesia or a class project or anything to kind of foster better understanding. I mean, I, I think it's really important here to say that the school would need to be very mindful not to reveal any child's synesthe who might not yet feel comfortable. But just by raising awareness and just by um, bringing that information to the rest of the school, you might find other children say, oh yeah, well, that's right, I have that too. And that, that would be a way for the child to realize not only are they special, but they're not alone. Um, there are also societies fostering a community, there are also societies the synesthetes that hold general meetings every year, so there is the American Synesthesia Association. And that hosts an email discussion group where synesthetes can share their experiences or they can post questions uh, or ask advice from academics. And so there are lots of ways to foster a community in synesthesia. So that would be the second piece of advice. The third piece of advice I would have is to, for a parent, is to assess yourself So parents who suspect their children might have synesthesia should ask themselves whether they are also synesthetes because evidence suggests that it's often an inherited trait. Now, the most important thing to keep in mind here, though, is that although synesthesia is largely inherited, the particular manifestation of the condition can vary from parent to child. So, for example, a child with colored letters might have a parent who tastes words or who sees time mapped out in space and so on. So open a dialogue with your child, discover synesthesia you might share in a different way. Um, And also if you are unsure as a parent whether you're experiencing synesthesia, you can use this synesthesia battery, this this www.synesthete.org website, and that will tell you as an adult whether you do or don't have synesthesia or it will give you some strong idea of that. So that's the third piece of uh, advice, assess yourself. Now the fourth piece of advice I would have is to encourage the benefits. So you can help your child to use their synesthesia in a beneficial way. So for example, if they're trying to remember a date in history, you can encourage them to use the colors of the numbers in the date to help them remember it. Or if they're trying to remember decimal places of pi or particular spellings, they can use their synesthesia as an aid memoir And and that would be useful in day-to-day life. So that piece of advice is to encourage the benefits. And the final piece of advice I would have is to educate the educators. So if as a parent you're experiencing a lack of interest or a lack of support from your child's school, one suggestion is to source relevant science articles. Now that's probably easier said than done for, you know, I know as a scientist that, that would be easy for me, but one easy way to do that is to just Google the Oxford Handbook of Synesthesia that has a chapter on synesthesia in schools if, if that 's available in your local library, photocopy the chapter, take it into your school and hand it to the head teacher so educate the educators and and um I think, you know, although overall um, knowledge about synesthesia is, is probably a little bit low at the moment, my experience has been that whenever you talk about synesthesia to teachers and you, te- and you and they they're learning about this for the first time, they're really open to learning about it. And I think this is a really positive basis that we can build on to uh, support child synesthetes in schools. And, and that would be my advice, really.
1: That's fantastic advice. I was when I first saw that. Um, chapter and the the suggestions in your handbook. I was so thrilled. It was like being in a desert and finally somebody giving me something to drink. It was wonderful. Well, that is
0: wonderful to Uh, hear. Thank you so much.
1: Yeah, and I did forward it on to the principal of of, uh, our local elementary school here. So um, just wonderful. Just one tiny thing to add to that is talking about fostering a community that there really are some great Facebook groups on synesthesia, and although they may not be appropriate for young children. Um, older children, I think, um, can benefit as well as parents, and you really can kind of learn a lot of what it's like to have synesthesia as well if you're interested in the topic. So, uh, Dr. Sinner, thank you so much for being with us. You've shared a lot of great information, and um, I couldn't be more thrilled uh, that you joined us. Thank you very much. My pleasure. Thank
0: you again for inviting me. Thank you.
1: Oh, wonderful.
0: Hopefully we'll talk to you again someday. Okay, bye-bye.
1: Bye-bye.